you know, a colleague of mine is going to be speaking on the main stage, and I'd encourage you to hear him because he's got a really important message as well. I spent the last four years in Boston. I am originally from Rochester, New York. And I, oh, there we go. I hear a few hoo-hoos. I uh, spent the last four years in Boston. And while I was in Boston, I did a lot of speaking at different universities, different churches, different conferences. And I started to hear the same kind of question over and over and over again. It was a question I didn't think was, was such a big deal until I kept hearing it. And that question was, if God exists, why does he just make himself known? Like, just write your name in the sky kind of a thing. And so I, I, I answered the question once, and I gave a 15-minute answer to this question. And uh, somebody was like, at the end of it, they were like, um, well, Alicia, that was a great answer, but it was 15 minutes. And uh, when, when you ever give a 15-minute answer to a question, you're like, maybe I should turn it into something bigger because it seems like there's a lot to say here. And so what I want to do with you today is talk with you through this whole kind of topic of if God exists, why is he not more obvious? Um, before I do that, two things. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, you're welcome to that. It's just my name, Alicia Wood, and 88 is the number at the end, so Alicia Wood 88. I'm really happy because I have over 2,000 followers, and Jesus only had 12. So I've, I, feel, I feel like I'm becoming somebody. Um, but, yeah, so you're welcome, and I just post some interesting things that are that – are, um, of interest to me, but also I want to let you know that at the end of this, we will have a time of q and I know you don't normally have that, uh, but I want to give you the opportunity to be able to ask questions about what you've heard today, and, and so we will have that at the end. Um, if you don't want to stay for the Q&A, that's fine. You can totally go, but I just want to let you know that we will have that as well. So this talk is actually titled, Does God Play Hide and Seek? Does God play hide and seek? Because I think what happens is when people think of God, they kind of think of like the search or quest for God as if we are in this cosmic game of hide and seek. How many of you played hide and seek as a kid? Okay, great. So there's a lot. Of, I loved hide and seek. It was super fun, right? You run and you, and you hide behind something and you're just kind of waiting for somebody to find you or maybe you're the counter. So you count to like 20 or 30 and you open up your eyes and you kind of see if you can find your friends. So what happens in the game of hide and seek? The counter who's at the tree or whatever, the home base, counts, opens up their eyes, and then they have no idea where their friends are. So they're completely clueless. So then maybe they wander this way to see if they can find their friends, or maybe they wander this way to see if they can find their friends. They try and do different things to figure out where they're going, but they have no idea. And I think sometimes people think that that's what it's like to encounter God, that we are just aimlessly wandering around, and we have no idea um, where he is, and we're just looking, and it's just impossible. But what if you were playing the game of hide and seek and you went and counted at the tree and you counted for 30 seconds and you opened up your eyes and you looked around and you didn't know where anybody was. So you started walking this way and as you walked this way, all of a sudden you heard warmer, warmer, you're getting warmer. Or you heard beep, beep. But then you went this way and you heard colder, colder. So you're kind of like, okay, I, I don't see anybody but I know something's in this direction. And I think that is the way to understand what the God in Christianity is like. I think what happens is that God gives us clues, gives us little hints, little warmer, warmer, to help point us in the direction that we need to go. But I will agree that, yes, the Bible does talk about God as hidden. And I do think that God does hide himself. So this is where the problem comes into play because you're, you know, you could say, Alicia, but 
in Christianity, doesn't God want us to know him? Like, doesn't he want us to know who he is? Doesn't he want us to discover him? And I would say yes. So then how do we kind of deal with this whole hiddenness kind of a thing? Well, potentially there is a reason why God hides himself. But potentially he also gives us very important clues. And I think you see that every day in a sunset. Maybe as you are, maybe even in a woods like this, as you experience and listen to the birds chirp, or you hear the breeze, or you experience a certain sunset that's beautiful, or the sound of the ocean, and you're like, wow, this is amazing. I was speaking to a friend of mine who was an atheist and a philosopher, and he's in his, I think, early 70s. And I said to him, I said, you know, has there ever been a time in your life where you wish God, you wish God existed? And he was like, no, not really. He's like, there hasn't really been a time when I was like, man, I really like, wish that something was there. He's like, but you know what? There have been times in my life when I have been struck by the beauty of creation and been sorry that there was no one to thank. And I thought that's so telling. Is it possible, guys, that part of our experience with something is knowing who made it? Perhaps we somehow feel slightly insufficient in our experience if we don't know who the author is. Think about when you go to an art gallery. You see a beautiful painting. And what's one of the first things you say? Who did it? Why? Because part of your experience with appreciating this piece of artwork is to know the author of it. And so I think for my friend, this is what he was missing and not realizing it. I love creation. I think it's beautiful. But boy, do I ever wish that there was somebody I could say thank you to. And my experience with creation would be complete. So I think God gives us clues that maybe there's something more. Maybe there's a little beep. Maybe there's a getting warmer. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because there is this kind of um, general idea that there is a God, this general idea that something silent like creation can draw out of us a response is like, is there something more? It doesn't mean that if you say that, that you see clues of God's existence in creation. I can't say that that means that therefore Jesus died and rose from the dead. You can't make that jump. Okay, you can't say, oh, look at the beautiful sun. Therefore, Jesus exists and he was an amazing man and did miracles and these kind of things and he rose from the dead. You got to be fair. But what if that's just the beginning of how God reveals himself? What if that's just one way in which he shows us, gives us hints, gives us clues that there's something more? A gentle nudge, a gentle poke. But I hear people say to me, okay, well, that's cute and all. Maybe there's some clues in, in creation. Creation is pretty amazing. And, and I, I can get why maybe that's one way God would reveal himself. But just how about he just strikes as a lightning bolt? Like, let's just forget the confusion. God, just strike his lightning bolt in front of me. Let me know that you're there. Okay, so let's, let's imagine this because people say this to me. So I'm walking down the street. A lightning bolt strikes in front of me. Do you envision that I'm going to bow my knee before it and say, oh, thank you, God, for your goodness and your majesty, and I give you my life? Or am I going to run the other way? Okay. It's a lightning bolt. Sometimes I think what we assume is that if God comes in such a strong way, that we will respond favorably to him. But I don't think that's the case. In fact, there actually is a passage in the Bible where God does come strongly. 
And I want you to read or to hear the the people's response. Keep in mind, as I'm reading this verse to you out of Exodus 19, that these people actually know it's God. So this isn't even, like, these isn't people like, oh, my goodness, there's a lightning bolt. God, I'm, I'm, like, scared. Like, what was that? It's like, they know this is God, and I want you to hear their response to him. So it says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. What happened here? Here God gave people the lightning bolt and thunder and tremblings and all this thing to show, I'm here, listen to what I'm saying. And did they want to? No. They said, Moses, you go talk to him because we're too scared. Exactly. Part of the reason why God does hide himself is because if he came so strongly, guys, we wouldn't be able to handle it. We wouldn't be able to fully handle being in his presence if we experience him fully as he is. So he has to withhold part of him self. And I think that's one of the reasons why God is partly hidden. Because if he's too obvious, we won't run towards him, we'll run away. God must reveal himself to us in a way that helps us to have a preservation of relationship with him. If he comes too strongly, it takes away our ability to say no. If I go up to one of you and, and hold a knife to your head and say, tell me you love me, say you love me, what are you going to do? You're going to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But are you really feeling warm, fuzzy butterflies inside for me? Do you really genuinely feel that you love me? In other words, the minute I force you into something is the minute it changes the nature of the way that you think about me. It changes the way that you feel about me. It changes the way in which you want to be in relationship with me. In fact, the last person you want to be in relationship with is me. Because I was too strong. And so God holds back parts of himself so that we won't experience him in such a strong way that we will run the other way. But is there? Is there a way in which God can reveal himself where we wouldn't run in fear and where true relationship still could be possible? I think there is. One of my favorite authors, not my favorite author, is a gentleman named Philip Yancey. I don't know if any of you ever read his books. I think he's phenomenal. And he uses a really great story about a fish tank. I don't know if any of you ever had fish before. My mother's from the islands, from the Caribbean, and they don't allow pets indoors. So me getting a cat or a dog was out of the the question. But I could have tank animals. So I had a guinea pig and fish. And so fish are funny because fish kind of, you know, we had our fish kind of in the main area there. And, you know, we would feed them and then make sure the water levels were okay, make sure the water temperature was okay. If you went away on vacation, you made sure you had somebody, like, come in and take care of them, all this kind of stuff. So I did a whole lot to take care of fish. But you know what's funny about these little things? Every time I walked up to that tank, you know what they did? They swam away. Like, what's the deal, dude? 
Like, I feed you, I check your water temperature, I make sure it's clean. You see me all, like, why are you running away from me? Because no matter how much I do for them, all the fish see when I walk up to that tank is how big I am and how small they are. So how could I reach them? What could I do? Well, I could become a fish. And if I became a fish, I could swim around with them. I could talk with them. I could eat with them. I could swim into their little houses with them. In other words, if I became a fish, they would no longer be scared of me. Why? Because I look like them. I'm similar to them. The Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus comes to earth. God comes to earth to show us and demonstrate to us who he is. But he does it in a way in which we're not scared. He comes as a baby. Now, not many people are that scared of a baby. So instead of coming as something where we run away from him like this lightning, he comes as a baby. You know what, you know what happens when you're holding a baby? Mothers understand this. You become a magnet. People all come on over. They will like magnet, like come right towards you and like, I want to touch your baby. I want to see your baby. He comes in a way in which we are actually drawn to him. He does healings. He does miracles. He speaks wisely. He, people want to know who he is. And so he comes as one of us. And I, so I think that this is the way in which God specifically reveals himself to his creation. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know um, how God feels about hurting people? Look at how Jesus treated hurting people. You want to know what God thinks about women? Look at how Jesus treated women. You want to understand who God is? You have it in the person of Jesus. And he comes as one of us. So God is partly hidden for our benefit. He leaves us clues of his existence in creation. They're just clues, but he reveals himself more specifically through the Bible and the life of Jesus. Usually when I have the opportunity to, to speak on this topic, I can have a PowerPoint. We can't do that out here, so I'm going to describe to you a painting that I would show right now. And this painting is by a gentleman named Holman Hunt. It's called Light of the World. And it's, this, it's actually really interesting because it actually describes kind of the scene that we're in. Imagine that there is a random house in the midst of all of these trees. And there is this man who's at this house, has something that looks like a crown of thorns on his head. It is evening time, dusk, probably about 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30-ish. So it's kind of darker, but still there's some reds in the air. The moon is behind his head, almost making like a halo behind his head. The, the, the underbrush has grown up, so it's kind of like pretty high there. But he's knocking on this door, knocking on the door of this house. And you know what's interesting about this door? If you could see the painting, you would notice that there's no door handle on the outside of this door. No door handle on the outside of this door, which means what? It means that the door handle is on the inside. What's interesting about this painting is that as you look at it, it's a picture of Jesus knocking on the door. And sometimes I wonder, why is it then people, or what is going on on the inside? If he's knocking on the door, what are people on the inside doing? For some people, they may be hovering in a corner. Other people may be right at the door but afraid to open it, afraid to touch it, afraid to see what might happen, how their life might change. For some people, they're like, look, Alicia, you don't know what I've done. 
I have lived a life of shame. I've done a lot of destructive things. I'm really, really a bad person, and I have so much shame, and I can't even go near that door. For other people, they would say, well, I would open up that door if God would do things my way. God, I don't like this moral law you have over here. So how about you fix that, and then I will come and serve you. So these are some updates and recommendations I think you need to do. And when you do that, then we can talk. So until that happens, I'm not going near that door. For other people, they want evidence. I want some solid evidence. I want to see a miracle. I want to see um, somebody rise from the dead. I want to see something concrete. And so I won't open up that door until I know for sure that it's Jesus on the other side of that door. But I find miracles an interesting thing. I fully believe in them. But I find that miracles don't always bring long-term belief. A lot of times they bring short-term kind of wow, but they don't necessarily bring a long-term commitment. You know, I was uh, speaking at, or I was at the University of York in England, and uh, I was talking with one student. I think he was like a physics student or cosmology student, something like that. And he was an atheist. We were talking for a long time, and he was just angry and pretty frustrated. So I was speaking to him, and finally about 45 minutes in, I was like, okay, hold on. What would it take for you to believe? And he's like, a miracle. I want a miracle. I said, okay, fine. Well, what if we went on YouTube right now, true story, what if we went on YouTube right now, and I showed you uh, a video of a woman who I've seen many occasions. In fact, she's been at music festivals like this. She's been to Kingdom Mount. Her name is Delia Knox. If any of you are familiar with Kingdom Mount, it's up at a Six Flags near Buffalo, New York. Um, Delia Knox, who was paralyzed 20-some-odd years ago, driving to her parents' house on Christmas Day. She was hit by a drunk driver, caused traumatic brain injury, and left her paralyzed from the waist down. She's traveled the world singing. She's got a beautiful voice. Traveled the world singing. And one day she's at this church, she's at this prayer meeting, and somebody pulls out their phone or video recorder or whatever, and it's just a few years ago, and they videoed her being prayed over. And as they're praying for, her, praying for her, she starts to be able to feel things in her legs. And as they're praying for her, she starts to feel strength in her legs, feel like she can move her legs. And then she stands up. And then she starts walking. You can go on YouTube and see it. Delia Knox walks or something like that. Delia Knox walking. And that's why I said to this kid, how about I show you this? In fact, it was not just something on YouTube. She travels to Buffalo back home to see her family a few days after this happens. And the Buffalo, New York news, the local news shows up to congratulate her. So this was even on the local news that this woman who was paralyzed is now walking. This isn't made up. So I say this to this young man. How about I do that? I show you your miracle. You want evidence? I'll give you your miracle. And he says to me, no, I won't accept it. But you wanted a miracle. He's like, yeah, but I could find another way to explain it. Like maybe her brain was able to like spontaneously heal itself. The interesting thing is he's actually not much different from the way people maybe responded to Jesus 2,000 years ago. When Jesus shows up several days after his friend Lazarus dies and he raises Lazarus from the dead, a man who many people knew had died. He'd been dead for several days. It wasn't a secret. And, a man, and, and so he raised Lazarus from the dead. And people now see Lazarus alive. Oh, my goodness, shouldn't everybody believe? I mean, we read that story, and I'm like, this is an amazing story. Like, Jesus raised somebody from the dead. Oh, wow. But then we stop after John 11. 
You need to keep reading into chapter 12. Because you know what's interesting? Some people believe Jesus. Or many. Either way, it wasn't all. And you know who didn't? Were the religious leaders. Those good old Pharisees. And they began to plot, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they began to plot how they might kill Jesus for raising him from the dead and how they might kill Lazarus again. Sometimes people tell me, oh, I need a, I need a miracle. I need to see healing. I, to believe, I don't believe them. So then what is another reason why people won't open up that door? I think some people just don't want to hear truth. I think the reality is that some people just don't want God. And I know that could be really hard for maybe some people to understand. So let me read you what a gentleman named Thomas Nagel, who is an atheist, professor of philosophy and law at New York University. He says this. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And if made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cos cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it's responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. In other words, at the end, he's saying, I, I'm not the only one who holds this way. I think a lot of other atheists hold this view. They don't want there to be a God. They don't want the world to be like that. Friends, I think we're more likely to suffer the consequences of our own hiding than to suffer the consequences of God being hidden from us. And I spent a whole lot of time helping people with their objections and their barriers and their struggles with how do, can you know Christianity is true. I can help you know Christianity is true. I can help you on that process. But one thing I can never do is I can never make you believe. I think God gives us enough clues gives us enough of himself to know that he's there, but he withholds enough so a genuine relationship with him can be possible. But relationship has to be something that we want. Now, some people have said to me, okay, I'm tracking with you, but the only reason you believe this is because you grew up in America. Had you grown up in the Middle East, you wouldn't necessarily believe in Christianity. So this whole thing makes sense, and God is, you say that God has, has shown himself, and he's also withholding himself, and that you see clues of him all around you, and all these kind of things, because you grew up in America. Well, here's what's interesting to me, guys. I did grow up in America, and there was like five of us Christians in my public school. So the fact that I grew up in America, I should be more likely to be an atheist than a Christian. So I don't buy that argument. When people say to me, oh, you're just Christian because you grew up in America, no, 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 no. I should be an atheist by this point. But number two, do we really think that people never convert from one belief to another? The reality is that all of us, no matter how old we are, have to decide what's true. And it usually happens for most people between the ages of 14 and 24. Where we have to say, what do I think really is true? And so people go from atheism to Christianity, or they go from Christianity to atheism, or they go from Islam to atheism, or they go from Islam to Christianity, whatever it might be. We all decide for ourselves what we're going to believe in and no longer necessarily hold on to what mommy and daddy told us. 
But oftentimes I hear people say, yeah, but what about those in the rainforest? How does God reveal himself to them? Those who live in very remote places, how does God reveal himself to them? Well, let me share with you a, a story that I heard um, in a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. I think the author's name is Don Richardson, Eternity in Their Hearts. It's very interesting because he talks about two missionaries that went to what's now like kind of northern India back in the 1800s. And they go to this rural part and, and come, come across this rural tribe, and they're trying to figure out how in the world can I communicate to this rural tribe Jesus? So they're starting to tell the story of Jesus and trying to figure out how to explain to them. And one of the sages says, hold on, hold on, hold on. You need to stop. I want you to listen to our story before we listen to yours. So they were like, okay. So the sage began to share the story. And they said, you know what? Back in the beginning, there were two people. God created two people. And the devil enticed one of them to pour rice beer on the ground and make a sacrifice to the devil. So they did. They poured rice beer on the, on the ground, made the sacrifice to the devil, got drunk, and fell asleep. When they woke up, they were naked, and they were ashamed. They went on to have seven children, uh, seven girls and seven boys. And these seven girls and seven boys grew up to do a lot of really bad things. And God decided that he could no longer deal with this. So he took one female and one male, put them in the top of a mountain and set a flood on the whole earth. When that was done, he took those two people down. They began to multiply and they had more and more children. As time passed by, one of the groups of people, one of the tribes decided they wanted to relocate from one area to the next. And so they started, they moved and they were moving along and they came up against a mountain range and they didn't know how to get over the mountain range. So they said, you know what? We've got to pray to the gods of this mountain to see if they can get us through this mountain range. And so they did. They prayed to the gods of the mountain and they were able to find a passageway through and they were able to move on. And he's like, but this is where we made our mistake. Because see, up until this point, we didn't worship all these gods, but now we're stuck sacrificing to all of these gods. And doing all the spirit appeasement and sorcery for these gods. He's like, but we know that these aren't the true gods because there is one God. And he created everything. And while we can't see him, he sees everything. Oh, but we've messed up. We've done so much wrong. And we just wish that there was a way that we could get back to that God. And now the missionary said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. A remote tribe in the middle of nowhere. The idea that we think, we, we think of God too narrowly. The idea that we think that he does not have a way to reveal himself and show himself to people that's different than how he revealed himself to you isn't true. In fact, if we were to go around this whole place and look at how each one of us became a Christian, we would say things have a different story. God brought us from different ways. The Bible says in Acts 17 that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is not served by human hands because uh, as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life, breath, and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they would live. God did this so that men would seek him, reach out for him, and find him. Because he's not far from each one of us. So Paul says in the Areopagus in Acts 17, he puts people in places so that we can best seek him, reach out for him, and find him because he's not far from each one 
of us. I truly believe that there is enough light for somebody to see God if they desire and enough darkness for them to still be blind should they not want God. I want to begin to wrap things up so I can give you guys some time for Q&A. Um, but I want to wrap things up with a story. A story that I think communicates God's gentleness and pursuit of us and his love magnificently when we consider this whole topic of is God far away and hidden? Is God so distant that he's out of reach? Does he even care? Many of you may have heard of a gentleman named Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson was born in England in 1859. He went to university for medicine because his father was a doctor, and so he felt like he had to do the same thing, but he was not interested in medicine at all. He loved poetry and literature. So one day, he just stopped going to college, and he moved to London. And he tried, he tried to get a, a career in literary and writing and literature and poems, and it wasn't working. And so he was doing a lot of menial jobs um, by basically um, by selling matches and newspapers and books and these things. And, of course, then he became addicted to opium because things weren't going well. His life was full of addiction and starvation, and he was sick. And he attempted to take his own life, but he survived. One day, he sent some poems into a literary Catholic magazine called Mary England. Well, the editor of that magazine read the poems and loved them and went and found Francis Thompson. He saw Francis Thompson in the state he was in, and he was like, what a mess, and he sends him off to a monastery to go get cleaned up. While at this monastery, he becomes a Christian. And several years later, after, writing, or after uh, being a Christian, he sits down and writes a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And in this poem, he talks about how he, being so utterly and completely lost, was relentlessly pursued by God and finally found. I'm not going to read you the original poem because it's in older English and I might lose some of you at 2.30 in the afternoon. So instead, I'm going to read you a paraphrase from, it's a YouTube modern day ad ad adaptation. It's the book is authored, or the adaptation is authored by Brian Oxley, Sally Oxley, and Sonia Peterson. Um, and I'm just going to read you a paraphrase of the whole thing because the whole thing is much longer than this. But I want you to listen to this, how this man encountered a God that he may not have even known he was searching for. A God who's accused of being hidden, yet it seems like was in relentless pursuit of him. And this is what he says. He says, I heard a story once, an incredible story, an amazing story. It told of one who was relentlessly faithful and loves with an unwavering love. It was said that he sorrows over broken people. It was said that he tirelessly pursues each lost one, never stopping, never giving up until. But if I let him in, what would I have to give up? What would I have left that I could say was mine? Anyways, it was just a story. Just a story. But if it was only a story, then why did thoughts of him trouble my dreams? Glimpses in the moonlight, glimmers in the starlight, and whispers in the midnight breeze. Gradually the whispers became a sound perceptible, only late at night, when all the world was silent and asleep, except for me and my pounding heart, and the distant sound coming closer. Soon I could hear it by day as well, stronger, constant, unhurrying. And now I could tell what it was. The beat of footsteps 
footsteps down the street, footsteps on the sidewalk, footsteps outside the door. He was coming, the one I'd heard about coming for me. And so I fled. I sought to fulfill every desire that life could offer, but the greater the promise of fulfillment, the greater the letdown, and the more intense my cravings became. But those footsteps, they kept coming nearer. He was chasing me. The desires I had found consumed me more and more, and I was never content. So on and on I fled, but he kept pursuing me relentlessly. His devotion to me was so great, and I feared if I opened my heart, he'd rush in, and I'd be allowed nothing of my own. So I turned away, hoping he'd go away and not notice me. And so I ran until there was emptiness and broken dreams. I turned to doing good, helping the poor and orphaned. But the aching for something more never left. The aching for something greater never left. And I decided to give up. My life was not valuable. Why even live? Why not end the pain? But then... But then in utter desolation, like a gentle breeze that washed over and around me, I felt the tenderness of his presence. I had no fight left, so I finally listened. Which of those you fled to loved you, I heard him say. And my heart answered, none but you, only you. And then he said to me, you will have no rest until you rest in me. Come take my hand and rise. And so in the darkness of my gloom, I saw his outstretched hand and I heard these words. Though you would not see it, I am the one you've been seeking all of your life. And so in that moment, after all the endless miles and all the fruitless searching, I finally quit my running and reached up to the one who had sought me for so long. The lost one was finally found. He required nothing, nothing beyond acceptance. The peace I had longed for and never known flooded my heart. And in having nothing of my own, nothing but his love, I found everything I had lacked. I was finally complete, finally at rest in him. I think it's us that run and hide, guys, while God relentlessly seeks. C.S. Lewis once said, when the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes beside you in the darkness, it's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God? Well, that's well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads? Well, that's better still. A formless life for surging through us, a vast power which we can tap? Well, that's best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars, or we would probably say cops and robbers in, in America, but we've been playing at burglars, hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly drop back. Suppose we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. Why does God partly hide himself? So we can enter into a genuine, mutual relationship with him. Where we don't feel forced. We don't feel like he overpowers us. But we say, I love what I'm seeing. I love what I'm experiencing. I love what I'm learning. And I want it. God gives us enough of himself to make relationship possible, but he withholds enough so that relationship is possible. So what does he have to do to be more obvious? A lightning bolt, an earthquake, a whirlwind? 
or perhaps he's obvious enough in that still small whisper that lets us know we are not alone, lets us know to look for something greater, that gives us those gentle clues that there might be something out there. I'm an athlete. I love sports. I love doing sports. Do I have any soccer players in here? A few. Okay. Oh, there's a bunch of you. Okay, good. Let's say that you're out playing soccer. Let's say everybody's 15. We're out playing soccer in the field. A game, let's say it's a game after school. You're playing. It's a really, it was a rainy day, so the fields are really muddy, and your cleats are really muddied up, and your shorts are muddied up. And it doesn't matter because who cares that you stink and or smell because you had a great game and you had a lot of fun, right? It's soccer. Come on. Anyways, your mom comes to pick you up, and, she's, and you get in the car, and she says, oh, my goodness, honey, by the way, I forgot to tell you. The governor invited us to dinner tonight, and I don't have any time to take you home. We have to go straight there. You're like, what in the world? She's like, okay, all right, I can handle this. I can deal with this. Let me just kind of stay close to mom and that kind of thing. So you walk in. You get to the governor's mansion. You walk in, and you're kind of like, okay, let me just kind of stay near mom and just hope that nobody sees me. But, of course, as soon as you walk in, who comes around the corner but the governor and his wife? Him and his beautiful, probably quite expensive, tuxedo, and her and her beautiful gown. And what's the first thing you do when this happens? You run and hide behind mom. But, like, what's the deal? Like, 30 minutes ago, you were on the soccer field, and you're having a great time. And now, all of a sudden, you want to hide behind your mother. What changed? Because the problem is that the minute that you step into the presence of somebody clean, all you can feel is your dirt. All you can see is your dirt and your filth. And so it makes you just kind of want to run away like, I'm not good enough. I'm too low for this. I'm not important enough. I'm not valuable enough. So I'm going to hide behind mom. But much to your regret, as you're hiding behind mom, you feel this hand on your shoulder. And they pull you out from behind her, and it's the governor. And he looks at you, and he says, I am so glad you came. And he embraces you with a big hug. And in so doing, he gets your sweat, and he gets your mud, and he gets your dirt, and all of your crud all over him. When Jesus comes to earth, he takes on all of our shame. He takes on all of our humiliation. And so God approaches us in the way we do, in the way he does. Because if we experience all of his purity and his cleanness and his majesty and perfection, we would recoil back in shame and embarrassment and humiliation and hover away from him and not come near because of our dirt. So, when he, so Jesus comes as one of us and he comes as a human and he experiences pain and suffering. And even better yet, he dies for our dirt. He dies for our shame. He gets our dirt on him. And full knowledge of the things that we have done wrong. To say, but I want you. And come into relationship with me. And he's not ashamed of us. Pulls us out from behind our mother. Embraces us. Says, I'm so glad you came as you are. So there's no need for us to hide. And there's no need for God to hide. Fully. Because he wants relationship with you. And so he is the hound who is in relentless pursuit of our affection. He is the gentle knock on the door of our hearts. And he is the small, 
gentle, comforting voice that simply says, come to him. I've left you guys some time for Q&A. And I want to go ahead and give you the opportunity to do it. The challenge is that I'm not going to hear you talk if you ask me a question way back there. So the challenge is you got to come up here and um, ask the question in the microphone. Uh, just so that I can hear you and so that everybody else can hear you as well. Um, I'm sure I haven't covered every last thing on this topic. Uh, but feel free to go ahead and use this as the opportunity to leave if you have to. But feel free to stay around and ask some questions as well. Oh, look at that hand that went right up. Come right on up here. We have to meet you because you are a bold human being. Pop that hand right up in the air. There's no problem being asking the first question. I don't think I can get the mic that far. That's okay. I'll stand with you. If Jesus is the fullest expression of God on earth and our best way of knowing him, then how could, ooh, then how could, be, how could it possibly be better for him to leave us? Okay. I love this. You're really bold, too. You need to add that to your list of things. That's okay. <laughs> Yay. She did good. She did good. All right. So she's, okay, so basically, why wouldn't Jesus stay here? Why would he leave us? Why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he keep letting us know who he was? Well, I think that's because there's a twofold mission to Jesus' reason for coming in the first place, okay? Because um, part of what she's saying, sorry, the other thing I didn't add in was part of what she was saying was that because it can be really hard to still kind of know. Um, I think Jesus came for several reasons. I think one of them, he came, as I talked about, to help us know who God is. Okay? To help us understand his character, understand the kind of man that he is, the kind of being, I should say, that he is. The second thing I'd want to say is Jesus came um, to give evidence that there really is a God. So it wasn't just about character, but give proof and evidence. Jesus said, believe in me, if not even for the evidence of the miracles themselves. In other words, he's saying, I'm giving you evidence of me. When people say to me, Christianity is a blind faith, I'm like, you don't know Christianity. Christianity is fully based on evidence. Jesus himself said it. Okay? And the strongest evidence Christian has is the resurrection. So the third reason I think Jesus came, so I think to help us know who God is, I think to um, um, give us evidence of who he is, I think to show us how to live, but then I think he also came to die. I think he also came to pay the penalty that we had to pay. We should have paid because of what we've done wrong. And so because of our broken relationship with God, either we were going to pay the price or Jesus was. And Jesus came in and took that place. But I think it wasn't just the penalty of, it wasn't just the death that he came to do. It was also the resurrection. And his work was done. There was no reason for him to continue to stay. He could have stayed maybe another, they estimate he was somewhere around his mid-30s when he died and rose from the dead. He could have stayed, what, another 40 years? But then he still would have gone away. Ultimately, it's like he, wouldn't, he wasn't going to stay here eternally. He came, he gave us enough, and then he left us with this Bible, this, these words, these letters of eyewitnesses, of people who've heard what Jesus' words, people who saw and experienced Jesus' word, to be able to communicate to us about him so that his, his story, his message wasn't lost. So is it, is it 
harder today to know who Jesus is because he's not on earth. If you want my honest opinion, I don't think it's any harder to know who he is because he's not here. When Jesus walked this earth, not everybody believed him anyways. We make the assumption that if he was here, I'd believe. If I could see him raise somebody, raise somebody from the dead, I'd believe. The problem is I don't think we fully understand our hearts. We give ourselves a little bit too much credit. Disciples weren't stupid. The people back then weren't stupid. There's reasons why they doubted then and there's reasons why people doubt now. So I don't think necessarily him staying for, you know, a longer period of time would have necessarily changed things. Now, if he had stayed for 2,000 years and we could verify this as a 2,000-year-old physical man, that might be an interesting kind of situation. Okay? I'll give you that. But I don't, I don't think we need it. I think if we needed him physically here to believe, I think God would have had a different system. I think the fact that he, that he died, rose, and went back demonstrates that we actually don't need him physically here to believe, but that he's given us enough other things that belief is still rational and belief is still possible even without the physical body of Jesus. Okay, I hope that helps you in some way. And I will say, yes, sometimes this quest to understand and know God and know who Jesus is can be difficult, but I think that's kind of okay. I think it's okay that it requires a little bit of work. But if you're on that quest, I want you to think of that poem, The Hound of Heaven, that I read. Because the reason why I read that is because when we think of God being so far away, we think that he's out of touch and he's just sitting back there with his arms crossed looking at us like, ha-ha, look at them wandering all around. They don't know where they're going. But what that poem demonstrates is not just that God wants to be found, but that he is actively pursuing us as well. In other words, it's not just you that's looking for him. He's also a part of it as well. He wants you to find him. He wants you to know him. And so you're not just doing this on your own, but he's actively a part of it. So hopefully that helps you in, in some way. And if not, please come up to me and ask me more questions on that later. I've never been asked that question before, so thank you for that one. Next person. All right, I see you over here. Oh, is this Samuel? I know you from yesterday. Samuel, I warn you guys, Samuel has some pretty tough questions. So if I don't know it, I'm calling on one of you. Okay, so Adam and Eve would used to have, like, common conversations with God when they were in the garden, and they weren't, like, afraid to be with him. But now we're, like, afraid to talk to him and with those signs and stuff, like the examples you gave. So I was kind of wondering, do you think the lack of normalcy in experiencing God's true power, do you think that's, like, part of why we're afraid of him now? Or do you think, like we'd still be really afraid of him otherwise. I told you. Um, come here, Samuel, just so I can make sure I, under, I understand it right. So you're saying, um, do you think the reason why we don't talk to God or communicate to God is because we're scared of him? Like, if it was, like, if it was more normal for us to talk to him, like, face-to-face -face like that, would that be... Like, would we be less afraid of him then? Or do you think we'd still be as afraid of him? So we could physically talk face. I see what you're saying. That's why you said the Adam and Eve part. Okay, so if we were in the garden with God walking with him, talking to him face to face, they weren't scared of him. But now, we've kind of, now we kind of are. <laughs> and so do we think that that has happened? That's interesting. I don't Sam was really good at asking me questions I've never thought of before. He was there yesterday at my sexuality talk. Um... I guess I would say I don't think we necessarily 
that our issue with talking to God isn't necessarily because we don't physically see him. Because I think even that verse I read in the beginning um, from Exodus, when people knew that it was God and they were, and they were encountering him, I think they, they still didn't want to engage with him. And I think we would probably respond the same way. I think the issue is that when Adam and Eve were walking with God and, and basically in the garden, they were in a certain kind of relationship with him. When that severed, I think a lot of things changed, including our ability to be that intimate and that close to him while here on earth. So I think we've lost maybe that ability to connect with him in that way. So I don't think if he, if he came down in this, and interacted with us in the same way that he interacted with Adam and Eve, I don't think we would be able to handle that kind of a relationship where we are. I think one day in heaven we will, but I don't think we can now. Did I hit that? Was that kind of your question? <sighs> that Samuel, man. Well done, friend. You're a good thinker. You know I like it. Keep it up. Any, who's next? Okay, red shirt, come on up here. If God created the universe to follow certain laws of logic and reason, and that's how we kind of interact with it in general, like, I mean, that's how we built all the cities in the world. That's how we make airplanes that fly places. That's how this system works and feeds back when I stand in front of the speaker. Um, why is it that God wouldn't, uh, I guess, interact with us in the same way that everything else on the planet does? Uh, like logic, like I can look at this tree and touch it and feel it. I can get a camera and take a picture of it and I can get an infrared camera and see what its temperature is. Like we're able to directly observe and test hypotheses, that kind of thing. Like, why can't we, uh, yeah, I guess, sure. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. So, so, so why can't we put God almost to the scientific method and to, to verify him? Okay, fair, fair question. Uh, okay, thank you, you don't, thank you, you can, you can, I'm sorry. I asked him to stay there just in case. I have a slight issue with losing questions, so that's why sometimes I have to spit them back because I just lose a question in my head. Um, thank you so much for asking that, by the way. And uh, all right, we, we, we need to think about things. We need to think about God and we need to think about our natural world in two, as two different things, okay? We have our natural world around us. We have trees, we have people, we've got bugs, we have the, you know, the laws of physics and mathematics, all these things. But then we have God who is supernatural, okay? So when it comes to, to testing God through scientific means, we don't have the ability to do that. Why? Because science has limitations, okay? Science cannot tell us everything. I know that's an idea that's really pushed forward, but it's only pushed forward by a few people who are very vocal that science has all the answers and science can speak to us. And, and we, anything we want to know about life or about anything, we can get through the scientific method, that science can tell us everything, okay? So essentially what people will say is that, while we have um, a natural world that, of science that science can tell us things, um, we, can we don't need the supernatural anymore because science gives us all the answers that the supernatural world used to be able to give us. So, for example, we used to get the idea of morality from the supernatural. We used to be able to get the idea of, of um, explaining how people came to be and all this kind of stuff through the supernatural. Now we have other theories and other ideas that help us understand those things. So science is now saying, look, we have all the answers. You no longer need God for any of these things. 
But the problem is that that's an incorrect way to think. Science has limitations in what it can tell us, okay? So science can only tell us um, to test the natural world. What it can't do is it can't tell us which one of the ladies in this area is the prettiest. What science can't do is say, is this a prettier color than your red shirt? What science can't do is make moral judgments or moral laws, right? There's limitations. Why? And it definitely can't do the supernatural. Why? Because science can only deal with the natural world, okay? Yeah, I'm not done. I'll get to that. Don't f so hold your follow, and then you can follow it up, okay? So why do I say that? Because we can't test a being that is outside the realm of science using science. It's too narrow of a field. Part of what the scientific method requires is the scientific me method requires reproducibility, in other words, you have to be able to do, do a particular experiment over and You can't just do it once and say, oh, therefore, this is the law. You've got to be able to do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. We can't do that with God, right? So, what we, so even if, let's just say God was able to come right down here, we were to we were say, okay, I want to prove that you're God. How do we do that scientifically? We would need to collect a sample. So we could collect a sample of him. Let's say we could collect a sample of what, his DNA? And then what do we compare it to? We don't have another sample to compare it to. How do we know this is really God DNA and it's not an alien DNA? Like, what do we have to compare it to? We don't have anything that science can't do a kind of supernatural testing because it only deals with the natural world. So God does interact with us to an extent in the way that certain things, certain things around us. So you were mentioning, like, I can touch the tree. I can feel the tree. I can see the tree. So I think, there are, I think there is a sense in which people can have those kind of experiences. They feel like they can feel God, maybe his presence, or they can feel him close or something like that. Can I physically see him? No. Can I physically touch him? No. Other people have physically touched him when Jesus walked the earth, right? They had those experiences. But no, I can't do that. But that doesn't mean that I therefore have to question his ability because he can't pass a scientific test. Because what science also can't do, science can also cannot tell me whether I love my mother. It can measure the way in which I interact with her. And it can say, based off of these certain, these certain um, behavioral patterns, maybe social psychology or, or some, some kind of psychological kind of branches of science can, can, can kind of help me um, help interpret those actions from my mother. But it can't test whether or not that's real. It can test chemicals. But is that what we want to say love is? If you do want to say that's what love is, then husbands and wife are going to have an in interesting conversation when they leave here. That all your love for me is really just a bunch of chemicals and there isn't something more to it. So all that to say, friend, I think it's a valid question. Okay, but understand that there are things that science cannot explain to us. One of them, or can't verify for us, one of them being the existence of a being that is a supernatural kind of being. Okay, science can tell me what is in the tea mixture that I make. It can break down the chemicals, it can break down the molecules, it can tell me all of that thing. What science can't tell me is whether or not I should give that poisonous tea to my grandmother. Okay, it can't make moral judgments. So all that to say, I'm just trying to say is, so God interacts with us in a way that I think that there is scientific evidence that we can use to demonstrate God through, depending on how you define science, I think that there's ways that we can look at just even the physical laws and the perfection and the fine-tuning of the universe. So I think scientifically in those ways we can demonstrate and experience God in those ways. But I think he interacts with us on more than just that. It's not so narrow. So I think he interacts with us in that way. But I also think he interacts with us on a personal level because we're not testing a computer program. We're testing a real-life being. And a real-life being is more than just their molecules. So I think that there's multiple ways in which God interacts with us than just that. Does that help at all? Do you want to ask your follow-up?
Come on up here. Tell me your name, by the way. Zane? Okay, great. Um, so, I have about a million more questions, but I can't answer or ask all of them. So, I think, so you said, like, science can't tell us whose shirt is prettier, but that's because pretty is subjective. Like, if we had a measure of what pretty meant in objective means, then science could tell us what it, so, like, of course it can't tell us, yeah. Right, well, we could, we could, why not? Why couldn't we say this is the definition of pretty now objectively and whatever, like red is objectively prettier than blue, if that's what pretty meant, like it's not, but. So sorry, I, I, I know that you can't hear me say things back. So he was saying, can, what, but if we could objectively show that red was prettier than blue, that means something. And I'm saying theoretically, but is that possible? Can we actually do that? And he was saying, yeah. So that's what I was saying back to him. I realized, sorry, you guys weren't able to be privy to that, except for this one gentleman up front. Um, and then you, yeah, and then you mentioned, uh, like, oh, do we want to bring love down the to the level of just something chemical? Um, and I'd say no, but just because we don't want to do something or it doesn't feel right doesn't make it not true. So maybe, I, yeah, I don't think that that, yeah, I know, but I mean, yeah. Um, I guess I still would say, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to remember everything you said. Um, yeah, well, I was a lot of them were in response to what you, a lot of my questions were in response to what you said, and I'm not remembering everything you said. Um, I mean, I think, yeah. We can just leave it there. I might as well not waste any more time. No, no, stay here, stay here. This is good. It's okay because I, you're probably not the only one asking these questions, okay? And it's not easy to get up in front of all these people and ask a question, okay? So kudos to you for doing that, okay? Oh, there you go. There we go. Yes, give them a good round of applause. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's look at a couple things. Are you, would you say, let me ask you this, would you say that science can tell us everything? Would you say that we can, anything that we can know, we can know through science? Because what you, what you did was say, okay, Alicia, I disagree with the colors thing. I disagree with the love thing. In other words, you were saying, I disagree with the, limit, the fact that you were saying there was limitations. So would you say that you think that science can give us all the answers? I would say I don't know, but for the sake of this conversation, I'll just say yes. Okay, that's helpful. All right. Um, one example I've heard from a scientist, Sir Roger Penrose, I believe he was, it was in Oxford. Um, says, you know, what, what science can tell us is how to, how to put a monkey in a space shuttle and send him to the moon. But one thing science can't tell us is whether or not we should. In other words, as a well-respected scientist, he would acknowledge that there's limitations. And the simple reason is just that I don't think any field, mathematics or science or literature or archaeology, is ever the full picture, right? Like it's, these are pieces of things that help us understand a bigger picture, which is why it's helpful when chemists work with physics and physics works with work, physicists work, work with biologists and the like, right? We're all getting pieces and nuggets. So science gives us one, is, is very, very helpful 
at testing what it can. But I think even by definition, because science deals with the natural world and it deals with things that are reproducible, it can't prove everything. So even the Big Bang, they'll say, they'll recognize we can't prove it. Why? Because we can't reproduce it. Right? Even the theory of evolution, it's reason why it's called a theory. I'm not saying evolution is true or isn't, but let's just listen with the circumstances. The theory of evolution. Part of the reason why it's called a theory is because we can't go back and recreate all of these things again to measure it out. In other words, we think that these things might be true, but we can't prove it. Okay? So just in terms of a natural science, looking at science in terms of what even science really claims, it doesn't really claim to be the answer all. It claims to give us a good chunk of what is within its testing bounds. Does that mean anything? Or does that help at all? Or does that bring any kind of further clarification? I'll still give the opportunity to give one, give one more question to me before I turn over to anybody else. You still want one more? Go for it, yeah. Um, so I guess, I think it's, yeah, so we'll grant that perhaps science can't answer every question I think then the question becomes, like earlier, and one thing you were kind of touching on a little bit in your first original response to me was how we can't measure God because he's supernatural. Um, I guess it's a little odd to me to just like assert that there's a supernatural God and you can't measure him with science. Like you can't just say that and it's the case. Um just like we could have said however many years ago that, oh, when a lightning bolt strikes, it's God angry at someone. Um, I don't know that it, yeah, I don't know that you can just assert that something's supernatural and can't be measured. Like, how do we know that, well, maybe eventually I'll be proved wrong and when well, I'm proved wrong, but maybe it'll eventually it'll be shown that we can scientifically prove God or something. So I guess it would go back to what is the definition of science in terms of what science can test and what is the definition of a God. So the, so that I would, I wouldn't, I'm not just posing that I'm not just posing that there is a God. I'm just saying, I mean, although obviously I do believe that, right. But for the sake of my answer to him, I'm just saying, if there is, then the concept of God is something that exists outside of our natural world. Okay. Otherwise he's subject to all of these laws. He's subject to life. He's subject to death. He's subject to all of these kind of things. Where science can deal with the physical material world, like materialism, naturalism, right? They can only deal with the physical material world. The idea is that God has as outside of that because he would have to be the one to put the one, put this in place in the first place. So there's an idea, so the idea between what science can test and what the definition or idea of God is, they don't they don't exist within the same world if I or same circles if I could use that. So if there is a God or gods, so we'll speak generally, okay, if Hinduism is true or some of these other if, if there's a God or gods, then I would say they would have to exist in a in a way that they are not subject to time. Because because if they're subject to time, then I would have to ask, how did that God get here? Who created that God? But then the Christian idea, because my God is outside of time, he's outside of the natural world, when somebody says to me, who created God and how did he get here, I say he's an eternal being. He's not subject to time. So nothing, he never had a beginning because he's eternal, and only things that have a beginning have a cause. But if this God exists in the natural framework, then we're going to have to ask some of these questions about how did he get here? And can he one day no longer be here? Is he subject to some of the same things that we go through? 
So I think, I think in terms of when it comes to belief in deities, they are outside of the natural world in which we are experiencing things. Hope that helps so much. Now, you know you had a million questions, so that was only two of the million. Come chat with me afterwards, too. All right, it's like three, okay. I will do this one question and I, can, I feel like I should let you guys go. It's like 310. Okay. So there are many other religions that don't necessarily have proof, but many other religions have a God or higher being or beings that um, they believe has created the world or causes things to happen. How can we as Christians know that our God created the world and everything in it? That is an excellent question. In fact, my colleague Michelle Tepper gave a talk on that yesterday, I think at W2. So that's a very good question. It's very important, right? It's real cute, and Alicia, that you say all these things about Christianity, but there's a whole lot of other people out there, I'm sure, who want to say the same things about their religions. I'll say this. I think there's a couple things that make Christianity different for me than for other belief systems. Number one, there is a whole lot of evidence outside of the Bible. New, let's speak about the New Testament. Well, scratch that. Let me just start again. There's a whole lot of evidence outside of the Bible that speak about the life of Jesus that's written in the Bible. Okay? So if you go to just normal archaeological, not Christian sources, but Roman sources or Jewish sources, if you were to read some of their things, you would understand, number one, that Jesus existed. Number one, that he had followers. Number two, or number, sorry, number one, number one. Number one, that Jesus existed. Number two, that he had followers. Number three, that he died on the cross. Number four, that it was Pontius Pilate who crucified him. Believe it or not, even the name of the person who had him crucified is written outside of the Bible, where it talks about how he's crucified by Pontius Pilate. That's not even only in the Bible. It's outside of the Bible as well. Um, it'll also talk about, yeah, so followers, um, it talks about how people pray to him. So, so we, have, we, have, we have writings that are outside of the Bible that help us paint the picture of God, of how Jesus was viewed even outside of the Bible versus in. And it, the stories seem to match up, right? We believe he was crucified. We believe he lived. We believe he died. We believe he was Pontius Pilate. I think that's very strong in terms of Christian and that there's something to this Jesus guy. The problem with that is that for a Muslim... Who's the Muslim, in Islam, Jesus doesn't even die on the cross. Okay? Jesus is a well-respected prophet. Esau is what his name is. He's mentioned more times in the Quran than Muhammad is. Muhammad's mentioned, I think, three times in the Quran. Jesus is mentioned about 90-something. Esau. Talks about Miriam, his mother, Mary, in the Quran as well. But what it says is that he was not, he's not the son of God. He's not divine. He's just, he's just another great prophet. But number two, he's not crucified. So the challenge a Muslim would have would be then what do they do with these historical documents written around the time of Jesus' life that say he was crucified by Pontius Pilate? That's one of the challenges that they would then have to deal with. I don't have to deal with that because I believe it. I already believe that Jesus is matched up with a story that I hold to be true. The second thing, um, so that's one thing. I think that there's documentation outside that other religions would have to find issue with their belief system to match up with history. Number two, I think Jesus does match up with history. I think he matches up with historical events and historical, like, you know, when it talks about certain, certain places in the Bible, you can go there and you can see those places, you know, so you have that credibility for that. Number third, I think Christianity as a whole answers and deals with these big questions that we have in life. 
An important thing for me is not just that somebody says, here, believe this, but does it make sense with the world as I understand it? Does it make sense with the world around me? As I am reading these things, does it connect with me? In other words, when it talks about how, um, well, morality, it talks about how we should live, right? I see people trying to come up with different ways of morality all around me. I see People trying to find ways to make, uh, to know what's right or wrong, to create different systems. Sam Harris, who's a well-known atheist, recently wrote a book called The Moral Landscape where he's trying to deal with how we can scientifically create morality, right? People are trying to find ways in which to create morality. Why? Because we need to know how to live in order to function, okay? Everybody believes something, okay? There really is no such thing as atheism. Now, we may not believe in a God, but we may believe in ourselves. We all have a belief in something, whether it's ourselves, whether it's a government, whether it's science, whether it's a social structure, whatever it might be that tells us how we should live and function. It may be our parents. It may be our friends. It may be our own system. But we all have a belief in something that tells us how to live. And I think what we see in Christianity, it's interesting that Christianity lays it out. And it doesn't just say, hey, you should know how to live and you should just follow what God says. It says that God's character is made up of the actual good thing itself. So as opposed to some things saying, some, some beliefs saying, do this and don't do this and do this and don't do this, I think we have a deeper understanding of morality within the Christian framework is that every good thing is a reflection of the character and the nature of God and who he is. So in other words, when God says that mercy is good, that's because he is merciful. When he says a gentleness is good is because he is gentle. When he says love is good is because God is love itself. Morality within Christianity is grounded very much so in the nature of the being and is not restricted to just things that he says. That's important. Because if, if morality is just things that God says, then he could say today that rape is wrong and he could say tomorrow that it's okay. If all morality is is whatever God feels like saying, then it can change up every day. Christianity grounds morality within his character. So it can't change. So it helps me to understand how to live and function. It gives me a meaning to life. I think we see a lot of people who are looking for a meaning and a reason to live, a reason to give up, to get up in the morning, a reason to go on. And Christianity offers us those things. The final thing I would say, and this is a big one, and I, I will say this as quick as I can, but I think it's, to me, I think this trumps everything else about, about, Christian, about any other religion. I think only in Christianity does God, can we demonstrate the perfection of God. And let me explain what I mean by that. If I was to say to you, what is the greatest ethic to have? You'd probably say love. And if I was to say to you, okay, well, tell me what is the greatest way to show love. Now, this is easy if you're a parent. Self-sacrifice. Okay? You see with parents all the time, if their child um, is drowning, moms will go in or dads will go in and dive in that pool and or, or pool or lake and parents will drown trying to save their kids. Okay? If a child has cancer, you'll see the mom at that bed saying, God, please just give me the cancer instead. I'll take it. Give it to me, not my child. The greatest way to show love, we know that. It's not brain science. It's your self-sacrifice. In fact, Jesus himself says that. He says, no greater love does anybody have than this, and they lay down their life for a friend. So here's what's interesting. The Bible has a very interesting verse in Romans 5.8. It says, so God, but God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we hated him and didn't want him, God dies for us. What? God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we hated him and didn't want him, God, di God dies for us? How does that happen? Sorry, it says Jesus Christ died for us. Excuse me. It says Jesus died for us. So how does God demonstrate his love if Jesus dies for us? 
God demonstrates love for us, and while we were sinners and hated him, Jesus dies for us. How is that possible? Well, here's the thing. Imagine if I say to this young lady who asked this question, you know what, I really love you. I think you're so amazing, and I want to show you that I love you. So I'm going to take somebody from this audience, ask them to go stand in the middle of the road and get hit by a car. That sacrifice will prove to you that I love you. And we would be like, seriously? That doesn't prove anything. Okay, in other words, if I want to show my love for her, I have to sacrifice myself. I can't send somebody else. I have to do the self-sacrifice for her. So when, God, when the Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were in a broken relationship with him and didn't want him, Christ dies for us, how does that make sense? How is it that God shows his love for us through Christ's death? Because if Christ, if Jesus really is divine, then that means that you, only in Christianity do you have a God who gives his life for humanity, which means that you have a God who shows love for humanity in the greatest possible way. Why does that matter? Because if you're a Muslim who does not believe that God sacrifices his life for humanity, then that means that I can sacrifice my life for you to show you love. And that means I have shown love for you in a greater way than your God ever can. So how is your God great if I can outlove him? How is your God great if I can show love for you in a way that's greater than he will ever be able to show love for you? How is he now perfect? So only in Christianity do we have a demonstration of the perfection of God in every moral way, including love, through the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because God shows love in the greatest possible way by coming in human flesh, 100% God, 100% Jesus, dying on the cross, giving his life for humanity, loving in the greatest possible way. So there's no way I could ever beat his love for you, because he's already done the highest possible thing. If, if I was another religion, I would really struggle with that. Because how is your God perfect if I can do a thing that's morally, a better moral good than he can do? That's a problem with the God and some of these other beliefs. It's a problem for Mormons. It's a problem for Islam. It's a problem for Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a problem for them all. And I don't know what they, how they rectify that. So all that to say, I think, I think we have evidence for Christian God. I think we, he answers the big questions of life. And I think we have proof of the moral perfection of his character through the death of Jesus. That's just some reasons that I would give you. Thank you for that question. I will hang around in case there's more questions. Zane, I'd love for you to come up here and ask me more questions too. Thank you all. I appreciate it.